hear me. Скажи мне, американец, в чем сила? А вы что, собираетесь на ней жениться? Да. Ух, красота-то какая, лепота. Таможня дает добро. Я вообще не называю меня, пожалуйста, Вероника. Кто я? Вот кто я? От русские земля, единый быть. Hi, my name's Ali, and this is the Rus Files Unite podcast, where we watch Russian films and films with a Russian connection. As always, I'm joined by a guest, and today my guest is Alyssa. Hi, Alyssa. Thank you for joining me. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, so Alyssa, before we talk about the film that we're going to be watching today, uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. Uh, so uh, I'm originally from Russia. I grew up in Siberia in a place called Omsk. And then I came over to England at the age of 15 to study. And it's been 20 years now and I still live in England. Um, my background is in film studies. Um, I've worked with film festivals as a curator and kind of coordinator and I've done a PhD in Soviet film history but then had a bit of a change of heart and decided to follow my passion for food and I've started a project called Kino Vino which is a supper club with a twist and the twist is that there is a film screening and the dinner is inspired by the film so people have that immersive experience of watching the film and then kind of continuing the experience of it through their taste buds. And I also wrote a cookbook about Russian food. So it's basically all things Russian to do with film and food would probably define me best. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, with uh, the greatest respect to my many wonderful previous guests, that pretty much makes you the perfect, most ideal guest for this podcast. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> so, you know, uh, expectations, you know. Uh, yeah, now i You know, sorry. <laughs> That's I'll awful. i myself up for. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Uh, so where to start? There's, there's, you know, so many places we could take the conversation from here. Um, I think probably start then from your experience of... You know, 15 years, that's, you know, it's, it's a good stretch. It's not like you moved here when yeah. you're five. So yeah. you've met, very much had, like, a Russian upbringing, but mm. then you've spent over half your life now living here. So, yeah, how, how did you initially find moving to the UK at that age? It was an interesting thing because um, kind of ever since I could remember myself, my family had an interest in... England through literature mainly and language as well so I had a English language tutor when I was I don't know five maybe mm. so and you know my first words were a mix of English and Russian oh nice 
I, but I mean, only, you know, like I could say Fox and say, like, you know, <laughs> thank you, that kind of stuff. Um, nothing sophisticated, uh, but still. So I always had English as a kind of a, you know, almost second language growing up. So when the idea came for me to move here to study, I was so confident that I'll be great because I was a straight A student in English classes in Russia. But when I came here, um, obviously, <laughs> it was a completely different ball game. Um, you know, just the fact that you have to actually live and study in a foreign language, um, it's very different. Yeah, and, and teenage slang as well. <laughs> exactly. And um, I w- my school was in Kent, near a place called Gravesend. And the accents there, I literally just could not understand a word. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So no one, no one explained that, you know, despite being a very small country, um, England has so many different accents, you know, sure. I mean, within London itself, let alone the whole country. So, yeah, I was completely shocked. Um, probably more so because I thought I would be so good and natural at it. <laughs> yeah. uh, so it took me, but I mean, being 15, you know, still very young and adaptable. Mm, yeah, yeah. Brain is more of a language sponge the younger you yeah, are. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, and I mean, I did have the knowledge already. It was just more kind of getting used to this. Yeah, as you said, the slang, mm, the day-to-day like the terminology. Yeah. Yeah, and then just kind of unlock my own, you know, because you're initially quite um, self-conscious and... Oh, of course. Well... You know, just stuck with it. <laughs> well, you know, that language is still kind of not natural. Yeah, and I mean, one tends to be self-conscious as an adult, but as a teenager, I mean, it's weird. Yeah, Teenagers yeah. kind of like walk this strange line where some of the time they're completely oblivious mm-hmm. and not very self-aware at all, yeah. and other times incredibly self-conscious. It's this kind of weird exactly. like yeah, duality. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's cool that we're talking a little bit about about teenagers and stuff, as that's going to be the subject of the film. But I don't want to go there yeah. quite yet. Um, so uh, about making the transition then, sorry, jumping forward a few years from doing the film PhD into doing the film themed supper club. How how did that how did that come about? Um, well, initially, my PhD was quite a tough thing to do partly because I, I I mean I don't think I was ready I don't think I've met anyone who's done a PhD who's just gone like <laughs> oh yeah it's a walk in the park that was it was easy yeah <laughs> it was a tough experience and then my subject as well um it was about the holocaust film in soviet film you know so holocaust representations of the holocaust in soviet film so that wasn't particularly fun, you know, if no, I was doing sort no. of comedy at least or something, you know, family films, or I don't know. So the subject itself was quite hardcore. Yeah, so an inherently tough process added mm. to extremely gruelling material. Goodness me. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm tempted so, to say, like, what possessed you to to, to choose that as the subject? But oh um, uh, well, uh, partly family history because I come from a family of Holocaust survivors. And gotcha. Kind of been, right. Right. Um, kind of haunting and inspiring me in so many ways. So I guess that's probably the main reason why I chose that subject. Um, so while I, yeah, while I was doing the PhD, I felt that cooking is a really lovely outlet. Um, just kind of switching my head off and working with my hands and then it's quite a lovely social thing to invite friends over for dinner Uh, so yeah in a funny way the food passion 
really started to come together or kind of really came about when I was doing the PhD on the subject that's, you know, could not be further from food if I tried. Um, and gradually, kind of the more I did the food stuff, just cooking and having friends around, and um, I started my food Instagram. And I think it was also at the time when the whole food Instagram trend um, really picked up. And I saw that, well, A, there was a really great way of just tapping into this new community, which you wouldn't have otherwise had the chance to. Sure, sure, sure. And just seeing what people do with, you know, where they take their passion for food. And it's not necessarily that you just have to train as a chef and work in a restaurant, that there's mm. so many options. That just, you know, inspired me. And then I thought, well, I still love film. And, you know, I've spent so many years studying film that it would be a shame to just leave that side of me behind and start something new entirely so I thought maybe I can find a way to mix the two somehow and there it was the idea to pair pair film and food yeah and lo and behold yeah you found a way of incorporating the the, the two passions um and it sounds like growing up from things you've said and written elsewhere that that food was very much a a thing growing Mm. up I mean obviously you know (laughs) Food is a big part of everybody's life, but yes. you know the level the level to which it's uh, just you have to do this for survival versus you know you actually get a kick out of doing it. It seems like your family was more yeah. in that second category. Definitely, it's interesting. Again, coming back to the Holocaust, that um, my great grandmother, who was the Holocaust survivor in our family, um, she worked as a cook her whole life so she cooked for a living I mean calling her a chef is a bit too fancy because she only worked in like Soviet canteens and things she never actually cooked at a restaurant but um so she to to me she was this uh figure that inspired so many uh, kind of interests and professional aspirations in me I suppose um so having her cook for me and for my mom she was a real kind of nurturing spirit in our family and uh, her cooking was very simple, you know, back in the Soviet days, unless you come from a very privileged family, you didn't really have access to fancy ingredients. So what we had was super basic, but, you know, it's just how how she presented it. And I guess just the energy with which you cook is quite important as well. So she mm. had the most, you know, warm and nurturing energy about her. And the food was always such a lovely you know, moment to celebrate and get together so yeah, I have the most lovely food memories growing up, even though it was a you know the Soviet days, and we actually shared our flat with my great grandmother, so it was a bit of a cramped space. Again, appropriate given the film where we've chosen. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So that whole thing of you know having your quite small kitchen as the heart of the flat, and that's where all the cooking and the socializing happens. And then if my parents had guests. Uh, for a dinner party then they'd be in the kitchen as well and you know it was this really amazing social um, almost like a magical space for the kids because you know at times you were not allowed to go there because the grown-ups were smoking <laughs> you know so that kind of stuff and so yeah the kitchen became a real um, heart of the family and I guess in my memories of my childhood now the kitchen really is that that first <laughs> Oh, there we are. <laughs> that first uh, space that I think of when I think of my childhood. So it's interesting to think that, um, 
you know, there's, there's a big trend to really criticize the Soviet days um, and kind of look back on it in horror and saying how terrible it was. But at the same time, out of all these constraints and restrictions came some really beautiful moments of community and, you know, sharing of food and that connection between generations that we don't have now at all. Mm, um, yeah. Even though by many standards, it's not healthy to live with your parents and your grandparents in the same no. flat. But having striking a balance be, between you know being able to spend quality time with with yeah. people and you know obviously it's a cliche but the older generation have so much life experience and you know the wisdom built up from that. Yeah. That, yes, yeah. they they lived through different challenges, but there's there's you know universal human stuff. Mm, definitely. And, and that's something I kind of appreciate more. As, as I get older, and I also feel kind of sad that I didn't get in that all of my uh, grandparents were gone by the time I was, I guess, oh. 21. So, and yeah, three out of four were gone before I was 15. So, yeah. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, I mean, fortunately, my uh, wife still has three out of four of her grandparents oh, so that's great. and we don't see them very often as they live over in the states but yeah spending time with them has, has been great and it's been something that I've yeah like I say kind of missed out on in mm. in my own life but uh, yeah sorry I went into a bit <laughs> nostalgia trip there <laughs> um oh gosh yeah where can we go from there though um I guess I wanted to say as far as your great grandma I mean just cooking on a scale if you're cooking in a canteen and and still making it good must have been quite a challenge yeah yeah it's quite funny we always remember with my mum that um I forgot where exactly she worked I think she worked at the whole sorts of Mm. different canteens but in a few places they say oh when you know when this lady's on duty the food always tastes a lot better and then my granny said well actually (laughs) That's because I don't take half of the ingredients out of the kitchen with me in a backpack when I go home, you know, because obviously, you know, stealing or, you know, reappropriating ingredients for your personal use (laughs) was quite a common thing in Soviet canteens. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) yeah, It's been a bit of a kind of notorious thing about Soviet um, public uh, cooking or whatever you can call it. And the black market in general, from what I understand, it's kind of like whatever job you did, it gave you access to the supplier of a certain commodity that you couldn't just necessarily buy everywhere else. And so that was that was kind of like the thing that you could like absolutely hoard yeah. and trade with people yeah, when yeah. you needed something so yeah there was definitely this um as you say a kind of a black market thing for food um you know when you know someone who knows someone that can get you a fresh chicken or i know it's it's a fascinating thing that um yeah how how a system designed in a certain way just has completely unintended consequences like mm, yeah the idea that Western journalists would get going to supermarkets or the equivalent of supermarkets in the late Soviet Union, the 80s, would be just like, there's hardly anything on the shelves. And it's like, yes, there were problems with production, but it wasn't just that there were problems of production. It was just often stuff not making it to to the shelves shelves because they would just, things would just go walkabout because it was... Absolutely. It was more valuable to you if you were working in the shop to be able to trade that with somebody under the table than, you know, pathetic wages that you'd get Mm, as mm. the employee there. So, 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, although just picking up the thread of the of the positive sides of the Soviet Union, certainly doing this podcast, and goodness me, I don't want to be an apologist for it because they're, you know, it was in yeah, many ways an, opp- an oppressive mm. regime. But I think sometimes the Cold War Western propaganda you know, to our own side, well, I say my own, as, as you know, somebody who grew up here, was so successful that it managed to convince all of us that just every waking moment in the Soviet Union was just utter grey, mm. dank, you know, squalid misery. And watching the films that I've watched, it's kind of like, no, people were still able to produce artistic you know, joyous stuff and people would have enjoyed going to watch those. Yeah, there was a censorship thing which meant that you couldn't necessarily express yourself in the way that you wanted to. Mm. Sometimes you could get away with surprising stuff. Like recently, well, by the time this episode goes up, it won't be that recently, but covering um, Welcome or No Trespassing and it's just incredibly scathing in an indirect way about the... It's fantastic, isn't it? And it's almost, in a way, it's interesting to have some kind of form of restrictions. And there are lots of artists who have um, self-imposed restrictions mm. um, in order to kind of you know, challenge their creativity because they believe that having some kind of challenge and some kind of restrictions is only um, productive and it actually inspires you to do something a lot more interesting if, if you... I think Lars von Trier had this five challenges film series or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Was that the um, the dogma like set of rules? Yeah, exactly. So you know, they obviously did not have any censorship imposed by the government, so they decided to no. create their own, you know, little censorship. <laughs> create, you know, in terms of kind of techno- technological tricks that they were using, but still, it's kind of within the same, I guess, stream of thought that it is a useful thing sometimes. Yeah, to have some parameters within which you're working. I always found it at school easier to write an essay if I had the question rather than I had an exercise of just, you know, just create mm, something. Yeah, w- yeah. Uh, what am I creating? Oh, anything you want. It's like, oh, what do I even want? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, speaking of creating things, uh, your your book. Uh, so that's, that's called Salt and Time. And yes. I mean, I understand that sort of came out of doing uh, the film club Kino Vino, but not exactly because, you know, it should be clear, you don't only do Russian films for the film club. No. So <laughs> kind yes. of limit, limit your appeal, <laughs> uh, which I, I can relate to doing this podcast. Yeah, especially in terms of food, yeah. <laughs> it's only Russian food. Um, no, so yeah, the Kino Vino project, even though it has initially a Russian-sounding name... Yes, um, yes, it, I'm always wanting to pronounce it Kino Vino. Yes, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can say that as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it sounds a bit more exotic when you say Kino Vino. I like Kino that. Vino. <laughs> well, yeah. to me at least it sounds more exotic. <laughs> um, so the, the project itself, um, it has pretty much nothing to do with Russian culture as such. I mean, I have done a few Russian ones, yes, but, um, you know, it's not the main theme and the whole point is to kind of create as diverse an experience as possible so from Mexican to Chinese and you know everything in between um, but from that just from working um, with chefs and cooking more myself kind of just getting the experience and the courage and the confidence to um, put together a set of recipes that I've created myself 
And then just the people that I've met. And obviously, you know, in order to publish a book, you have to have a bit of a name in the industry. You can't just oh, have sure. zero. Yeah, yeah. Even, you know, you can have the most amazing story, but if if you're completely unknown, then it's a bit hard. And, you know, I'm still, I've only, you know, it's only been four, five years that I've started this. Um, so I'm still not, you know, as established as other people that I have worked with and, um, you know, aspire to be one day. But um, so, yes, I mean, and kind of all these experiences put together and a bit of um, connections within the industry led to a book proposal and an agent. And again, luckily... I've had a really great response from the publishers, um, which really, you know, only reassured me that, the, you know, the time definitely was right for it because I just suddenly, it was about two years ago, just suddenly had this, like, eureka moment that I have to do a Russian cookbook um, because I just felt like, you know, it's such a brilliant idea and it's kind of floating around and no one has uh, grabbed it yet so if I don't do it now someone else will definitely come in very soon <laughs> yes especially with with the way that I guess audiences have kind of like atomized there's there's definitely going to be an interest for a particular niche mm. area so if you don't get to it you like you say some somebody will so yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure this is the question that you get all the time so I apologize for the unoriginality of it but what's the what's the idea behind the title salt and time sure I uh, know it's a good question um, the initial idea is a reference to the process of fermentation um, because it's such a key element of uh, Russian cuisine and something that I grew up eating and it dates back to the middle ages so you know if you were to define the essence of Russian cuisine, then fermentation is definitely one of the key strands of that. Mm, and Yeah, um, I mean, short growing season and all that, relatively speaking to some places. Exactly. There's so many, yeah, there's so many reasons why fermentation is such a key element. Um, and um, at the time when I was making my transition to food, um, I've it just seemed like all of a sudden everyone was fermenting and everyone was talking about mm. kraut and kefir and kombucha. And to me, it almost sounded very amusing because, you know, it was my standard, you know, not very original or let alone trendy diet when mm. I was growing yeah, up yeah. in the Soviet Union. It was more about the shortage of things. We kind of had no choice but to ferment. Yeah, it's the thing that the, that the, old, that the old folks exactly. yeah, <laughs> are exactly. in charge of, yeah. And so I thought, mm. well, that's quite fun to... Find, you know, use that connection as a way of introducing Russian food into contemporary British eating culture. And I started doing a few pop-ups where, you know, the menu would have um, fermented something, you know, there would be each, um, each dish on the menu would have a fermented element to it. And I called those pop-ups salt and thyme as a reference to this mm. magic of cooking with nothing but salt and thyme. And then um, when my idea for the book came about and the proposal, I used that as my working title. And then the more I thought about it, I, I felt like it's actually a really beautiful poetic mm. name as well that um, makes you think of, well, at least makes me think of the snow. Salt and snow have that visual and also the, the um, kind of sonic affinity in a way, you know, the crushing of the salt and the crunching of the snow. Oh, and then, yeah. Time, 
I mean, it's an absolutely essential cooking element. And also to me, in my personal story, it took time for me to reconnect with my Russian identity in a way. Um, and food was a huge part of that process. So I felt mm. like on so many levels, it's such a brilliant title that really kind of goes down to the essence of Russian cuisine, but also of my personal relationship to Russian cuisine. Yeah, I mean, and, and they're two such basic ingredients oh, exactly. of, of life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you, you can go through life probably quite easily without encountering, say, kombucha if you just <laughs> don't happen to, yeah. you know, live in a in a culture that's connected with that, or you don't live somewhere that's particularly cosmopolitan. But basically, everywhere has has salt. And, mm. Yeah, yeah. But uh, as far as um, the Shall we say the the marketing of of the book? Have I got this right? You toyed with or considered calling it a Siberian cookbook, but yes. decided against that. Yes. In the end, my thinking was um, initially not to use the word Russian because it's such a mm. complex term in general. Um, sure. You know, when when it comes to food. And that whole question of, um, you know, national belonging of food or where the food comes from, you know, it's a whole kind of PhD field <laughs> yes. of, you know... Kind Sh- of should the... you decide to do another one? <laughs> exactly, yeah. So the, the kind of... Might, might be a bit more fun than the Holocaust Definitely. one. yeah. <laughs> uh, if so, I can, you know, not be too flippant, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I felt that, you know, might be more... Um, Relevant to my own history, I suppose, mm. or my own experience, to just use the word Siberian because that's where I came f- come from. Sure. And um, and there's a certain novelty there. People. Go, yes, oh, exactly. And I felt it's quite that? a you know quirky thing to say. But then mm. um, when I started telling people about my project, and people were like, oh yeah, Siberia, that's a lovely place um, next to Croatia. And I was like, oh, okay. Really? So then this whole... people getting, getting Serbia and Siberia yes. mixed up. Huh. So I was like, okay, mm. that's not good. And then no. <laughs> um, <laughs> the other thing that my publisher said, and I trust them completely, that marketing, you know, is such a huge part. Mm. Um, and that, yes, we definitely can't use... Well, not definitely, but we, we, we would risk a lot of misunderstanding mm. and confusion if we have Siberia well, on the title. And associations, right? Yeah. It's like people, you know, for people who don't mis- misidentify it as Serbia, um, <laughs> if you say Siberia to the average Brit or American and mm. just say, what do you associate it with? They'll probably say something like exile and gulag. Yes, exactly. Which is awful. And, and you know, and winter. Yeah, uh, yeah, so, not appetising in the slightest. No, so. no. Yeah, uh, 333 things to do with cooking with snow or something stupid <laughs> yeah, like exactly. that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, interesting point about Russian food being a broad term. I mean, I guess it's it's you could say there's a slight analogy with with British food in that you can choose to define it quite narrowly or quite broadly. I mean, mm. maybe this is just a thing with countries that had a big empire Exactly. Yeah, I was going to say the whole colonial past definitely feeds into that. Yeah, like I, I forget which curry dish it is. I want to say it's uh, chicken tikka mm. was, was developed by South Asian immigrants in Birmingham yes, I, I want to yeah. say so it's it's not it's not a dish that came that was born 
physically exactly in the Indian subcontinent, yeah. but it was you know at, yeah out of uh, people who who were originally from that part of the world. So yeah, similarly with with Russia, you know, if you go back for five hundred years, it's it, it's a much smaller place mm, um, mm. and encompasses a, a you know a much less diverse range of uh, of ethnicities yes. and from you know doing a little bit of research and just stuff i knew from living in russia although i never made it out to siberia i'm sad to say um a trip to baikal was on the uh, wow, on the to-do list amazing. for a long time and yeah. never 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 made it but uh, my understanding is that siberia partly because of the exile thing mm. to be honest um ended up being quite a melting pot and that's kind of reflected in the cuisine. Yes, um, yes. Yeah, could you develop that a little bit? Yeah, so the interesting thing about Siberia, so even though the book says Russian on the title, and again, you know, just so complex to try and define what's Siberia and what's Russian, you know, it's all sure. part of something a lot more kind of fluid and complex. Um, mm, yeah, so yeah. I still talk about the food as being Siberian purely because that's where I come from and that's the food that I grew up eating. Sure. And most of the recipes in the book are kind of based on my family recipes. But um, yeah, there is also s some research into pre-revolutionary cuisine and treating all of these recipes with a more contemporary touch from kind of mm. me as a chef working in London today. Sure. Um, but still, Siberia is the kind of a framework, a thematic framework for the book. And the fascinating thing is that, as you rightly said, people associate it mostly with exile. But because of that, it's a fascinating thing that um, so many different kind of ethnic groups and um, people of all sorts of um, cultural and religious backgrounds kind of pass through Siberia. Well, and often quite creative people, because creative people tend not to be as willing to keep their heads down and not attract attention as you know mm. I, I don't you know all people are creative to a to a degree I don't want to say you've got creative people and then just kind of the lump and rest of the population <laughs> but you know some people it's more central to yes. you know their identity and their yeah. self-perception and whatever um but uh, yeah creative types more likely to you know attract the ire of the of the authorities even if they're doing nothing particularly yeah, you know yeah. to challenge it you know if you're a paranoid guy like stalin it's just like mm, i don't like the fact that you're not just falling into line mm, yeah anyway uh <laughs> yes so sorry i think i sidetracked oh, that no, no tends to um... when, you, when you mentioned the s word yeah <laughs> so Siberia just happened to have the most interesting kind of anthropological almost history in terms of um, the migrants moving from the Far East to the West and vice versa. You know, personally, my in my family, my dad's side comes from the Far East of Russia and um, my mom's side comes from, um, well, there's a bit of mix there, but the main part of the family comes from Ukraine. And there were um, Jews who moved to Siberia from Ukraine uh, during the Holocaust or mm. escaped somehow, miraculously escaped the Holocaust. Sure, um, sure, sure. So even in my own family, it's a really interesting example of the kind of east and west of Russia or former Soviet Union, rather, um, meeting mm. in one place. And of course, there are so many other families who have similar stories or 
similar in a way that they kind of came from, you know, all parts of the former Soviet Union and settled in Siberia. Mm. And because of that, you know, there were so many interesting um, dishes and influences, you know, like it's very uncommon to think that um, Korean pickles and the whole culture of Korean uh, style food preservation is very popular in Russia and in Siberia. Um, mm. But if you ask anyone who comes from the former Soviet Union, you know, do they like Korean pickles? And they'll say, oh, my God, this is like one of the best things that we always have. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, in any market you go, you'll see a dedicated Korean pickle stall with like all those beautiful mountains of um pickled carrots and tofu skins and cabbage and all sorts of stuff um so that's quite a fascinating thing and then um where i come from the place omsk it's quite close to kazakhstan Mm. so the soviet central asian cuisine was very common kind of as far as i can remember plov of course plov yeah and um so yeah there's so many um kind of almost street food style canteens um, that serve um, really lovely uh, soups and dumplings and uh, plovs. Um, And just in general, when you go to the market, it's such a beautiful um, kind of diversity of faces, you know, Asian, Russian, Georgian, you know, it's just a really fascinating notion of the melting pot that's really sure encapsulated in the market scene yeah when when we were living in moscow uh we'd quite often go to a an open-air market mm. and our favorite stall there was run by a a georgian lady so we would get sulagoni georgian yeah. cheese oh, there it. it was very good yeah. um oh what else did we, we we have and uh i mean she didn't sell Hachipuri, but that mm. was one of, in terms of my culinary journey, learning about Georgian food. Yeah, that's a huge revelation, isn't it? This is probably like my the fourth or fifth time I've mentioned it on the podcast. <laughs> uh, it's, 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 you know, sorely, you know, not known about I, I feel like it's it's kind of it's kind of sad but going going to the 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 Korean thing that was something I was very surprised about just in general I wasn't aware of the modern Russian Federation and to an extent the uh, the Soviet Union's I mean obviously the Soviet Union was even more ethnic like, yeah ethnically diverse but I think I certainly had sort of got into my head that when the Soviet Union collapsed, that basically, you know, all the people who weren't Russian had just gone, uh, we don't like you guys anymore, mm, so we're leaving, back, bye. Yeah. <laughs> so that everyone was yeah. left, uh, you know, almost, with the yeah. exception of, say, the Chechens, uh, was was like ethnic Russian now, yeah. which is obviously very far from the truth. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of interesting. And just because you don't tend to think about, again, if you grow up, here mm-hmm. or <laughs> yeah how far russia stretches you know over that way over <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, towards the right on the map and mm. oh, right yeah you are right by korea so yeah mm. i just didn't realize that there was a any sizable population of, of koreans like yeah and one of the dishes that you have in the book is called i'm probably butchering the pronunciation but uh, uh is it here yeah or yeah here? yeah yeah, yeah. So uh, what what's that one? So that's another classic from the Korean market mm. stall. 
Um, it's essentially, I call it a Soviet Korean ceviche because it's essentially mm. um, it's a very thinly sliced uh, fish, raw fish that's then marinated in a mix of vinegar, spices and sugar. Um, and it's served with a fresh grated carrot and fried onion. Um, and that kind of combination of a fried onion with coriander and sunflower mm. oil, which is then mixed together with very pungent, garlicky, cayenne peppery um, acid, um, is quite a funny combination because one side is very kind of Slavic, if we can call it that, mm. <laughs> in a very more traditional Russian, and then yeah. obviously the whole um, sugar, garlic, acid, and cayenne pepper that's a lot more Korean. Yeah, um, and the, and the ceviche like thing of you know for people not familiar, I've never actually had ceviche, but I know okay, yeah. conceptually, um, you, the cooking without heat yes. idea. So it yeah, cooks the fish completely because it's very thinly sliced, and obviously the acid is quite a strong element, and it's a beautiful thing together when when it's mixed together because there's a bit of sweetness and mm. subtlety from the onions and the coriander, and then this really sharp sweet flavor from the fish and yeah it's it's quite amazing i love it they also make it with uh, pork pig's ears but i i've mm. never tasted it myself so i think it's a bit <laughs> risky that sounds a bit more of a more of a challenge yeah, yeah. so i decided yes. not to have <laughs> include that in the yeah book. yeah it didn't quite make the shortlist no. <laughs> <laughs> hmm, and then obviously yeah, the whole yeah. tradition of eating raw fish um, it's also quite common. Mm, I was hoping you'd bring this up. Yeah, yeah, um, common in Siberia itself. So there's something that I kind of sadly bypass in the book mm. for various reasons, while well, namely not having enough time to do proper research, is the indigenous um, culture in Siberia because there's so many indigenous ethnic groups that live. And obviously, it's important to remember that Siberia is huge. So when we say Siberia, there's also so yeah. much variation to that. So, you know, throughout the whole of Siberia, there's so many different ethnic groups who have their own culture and culinary traditions and so on. And um, without doing much research specifically into that, um, the only dish that really kind of is well known and is now commonly eaten across the whole Russia is a thing called straganina, which, mm. again, is um, raw fish, but in this case, it's actually frozen raw fish. And um, so you, you would get fresh fish and then you freeze it, which seems a bit counterintuitive, but it's actually a really beautiful mm. moment when you thinly shave it and then have it with a whole bunch of condiments like horseradish cream, really coarse uh, sea salt, pickled um, onions um, or fresh onions, and then that whole sensation of the really cold, ice cold fish that gradually melts and turns into this really lovely sweet thing in your mouth. Um, mm. Yeah, it's quite quite sensational. And I feel like in the book, people might look at it and think, oh, that's a bit weird. <laughs> but I really encourage you to give it a try. And especially if you can have it with a shot of vodka, because that's just... That's just the best thing. Yes, I, I, I was going to say, I'd read that it's quite common as a chaser with, yeah, with vodka. And yeah. uh, that I wasn't aware of prior to moving to Russia was was how important the zakuski the oh, kind of the snacks when mm. you when you're having a, a bit of a session is yeah i think that's another misconception about russian guess eating drinking culture that you know yes we do drink vodka and it's a very strong spirit but how we do it it's a whole different story you know here it's very common to just have it on the rocks in the pub mm. or in the 
nightclub, which I completely don't understand. Um, <laughs> whereas, you know, in Russia, you would have that uh, drink as part of a bigger gastronomic kind of ceremony. And, and I mean, of yeah. course, there are people who do drink vodka, you know, behind a garage somewhere standing, you know, and smoking. You know, that happens to I'm not yeah. saying that all the Russians that they have a ceremony with vodka. Of course, <laughs> yes, there's a yeah. whole range of relationships to alcohol in every country. Um, yeah. But when it's done well, it's a really amazing moment when you have a specific set of dishes. It's a, yeah, it's a bit like tapas kind of thing. So it's all little or relatively little plates, you know, so it's not like an individual mm. plate. It's all sharing plates and platters of ferment and pickles and things like straganina. Um, Some nice rye bread. Yes, rye bread and horse, you know, so, so things that have very strong, I guess, very strong flavors. Um, and kind of hit your palate on different angles. And then vodka is an amazing recept cleanser for the receptors on your tongue. So when you have a shot of vodka, it really kind of strips it of all its memory that it's you know ever tasted before. And then you have that most amazing experience of tasting the flavor of each ingredient in that particular Zakuski meal, um, you know, as if it was your first time. And it's so, um, you know, pungent and strong and um, nuanced at the same time. So I think that's why I love um, drinking vodka with a specific meal and not just having it on the rocks, standing at a pub or something. Yeah, you're right. That does sound uh, a lot more appealing. Um, I'm really glad that you brought up the uh, stroganina side of things, because that was definitely one of the things that I went, oh, that sounds super interesting. And the the raw fish thing that was that was something I was again quite surprised about when I initially moved to Moscow was just how popular Japanese restaurants of a kind were. It's very like Russianized. Uh, yeah, it's quite interesting to see this um, trend. Well, it's been around for at least fifteen years now. I think um, when the first sushi restaurant opened in Omsk, where I'm from, it was really a mega special occasion kind of venue um, and it was always you know fully booked and you would actually get quite decent sushi there uh, but then gradually that particular style became so popular that and yes as you say it be has become Russianized in a way that you get cream cheese and all sorts of stuff in it um, and also just the way it's available literally on every street corner it's almost be become like a <laughs> kind of Russian street food really um, you know you get a coffee shop and a sushi bar in one place and they come up with all sorts of uh, funny kind of Russianized names like sushi bambushi or something it's just um or babushi or whatever, you know, it's just really silly um, kind of play on Japanese and Russian words. Yeah, but it's interesting that um, at the same time that dish straganina is um, also becoming quite trendy and starting to kind of rival the sushi mania. And yeah, it's quite fun to see something um, that's very regional, uh, kind of belongs to the indigenous population of Siberia suddenly becoming, well, not suddenly, but, you know, it has been around for a long time. But I think the whole kind of um, immersive experience of a Straganina bar is quite a recent phenomenon. And it's definitely um, a rival to the sushi bars. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess that's something that's developed since I left Moscow five years ago or Maybe it was starting, it was kind of bubbling up under the surface, but 
yeah, wasn't something that had <laughs> really come to my attention. Um, so going from slightly dodgy cream cheese infused uh, sushi, um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the negative perceptions of Russian food over here. Um, was that something you found a challenge in terms of like writing the book and 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 marketing the book because i i know maybe for british audiences it doesn't have the most like oh let's have some russian food kind of oh absolutely it's um it's quite a challenge because you don't want to sound too negative in the book you know saying so in the introduction that um you know most people in the west think that russian food is pretty horrible um or even a chef who are not um from the West, um, I have heard them say on various programs that Russian food is pretty uh, pretty bad. So yeah, you don't want to kind of drive that message home too much in the book, <laughs> uh, even if my intention is to then contradict it. So I was trying to tread carefully around that subject. Um, and I think my hope is um, to show just authentic food and then, you know, let people you know, decide for themselves if it's good or bad. And by authentic, I mean um, something that authentic to me. I'm not claiming um, to have the ultimate recipe for the authentic, you know, Russian iconic authentic food. Um, it's, I think that kind of term itself is problematic. By authentic, I mean kind of honest to me, to my palate, to my memory of my family and my family's recipes um, and just present something that fascinates me, that excites me, that I love cooking at home and um, hopefully that kind of honest kind of energy behind it will come through and people will will kind of feel the need or the interest to um, explore if they haven't had any Russian food before. Um, so the jury's still out. <laughs> um, I have been getting lots of really wonderful messages on social media and have been tagged in lots of posts um, where people, you know, cook something from the book and then um, post about an Instagram, which was really touching and uh, lots of lovely reviews on Amazon. The book only had five star reviews so far. So, I mean, that's really encouraging and really, um, yeah, just makes me really happy. Oh, that's great. I'm really glad to hear that it's been well received so far and that people are being open minded uh, about uh, Russian food. Um, I I wonder if some of the residual negative perception of Russian food that I sometimes encounter over here comes from the fact that a lot of British establishment journalists who are middle-aged at this point may well have visited the Soviet Union in the 80s. I mean, you were on Women's Hour at the time of recording recently and she'd she'd visited there and not come away with the most favourable impression of, of Russian cooking, partly because of, you know, Stolovaya canteens. And you mentioned the... I think on their tendency to smother everything in mayonnaise, and that was something that you were very keen to get away from. Yes, I do have a bit of a love-hate relationship with mayonnaise. Um, historically, uh, mayonnaise um, was quite easy to produce during the Soviet days, um, you know, produce en masse using egg powder and so on. Um, obviously, we're not talking about handmade fresh mayo with <laughs> fresh eggs and stuff. We're talking about proper kind of industrial 
everything comes out of a packet type of mayonnaise. Um, and yes, it's been used really widely because it's the best way to mask um, you know, certain ingredients who which might not be the freshest or, you know, if there's a salad that initially supposed to use uh, chicken meat, uh, chicken breast, for example, but of course getting, you know, good quality chicken breast back in the Soviet day was quite hard. So instead, a lot more mayo would be used and then maybe things like the doctor's sausage, the iconic Soviet doctor's sausage would be used instead, or a very kind of poor quality chicken would be used, but then because there's lots of mayo, it wouldn't really kind of strike you as much. <laughs> um, but in, in the book, I liked looking kind of at the heart of the recipe, what are the actual ingredients. And luckily these days we have access to very good quality ingredients and just kind of stripping it back and letting the ingredients sing um, for themselves. Um, one of the recipes that I particularly like is based on an iconic Soviet mayo um, salad. I don't know how you can actually call it a salad because it's just as heavy as anything. It's basically um, a black radish uh, that's fried with onions. It gets this most amazing, sharp, yet very sweet um, flavor because of that. And then there's some boiled beef. Um, and then all of that gets um, smothered in mayo. And it's um, it's very delicious. Awesome. Um, so we should probably move along to, to talking about the film side of things. Um, so... We've alluded a couple of times to the film that you've brought along, but this this one you actually did show at Kino Vino, is that right? Yes, I did. It is one of my f most favourite films and it's been a dream of mine to show it at Kino Vino, but I just didn't have the occasion. And then um, back in March, when my book came out, um, I decided to do a Kino Vino dedicated to that um, so being a curator and a chef at the same time. And I thought, what can be better than um, showing my most favourite film and this particular edition of Kino Vino? And um, you kind of forget how amazing it is. And, you know, it's funny and, you know, it's entertaining, but it also has so much heart and honesty in it. And, you know, it's quite emotionally really moving and quite hard at the end. So... Um, I think my guests really went on a most amazing emotional <laughs> journey through the film and then we had a lovely Russian meal to balance it all out. <laughs> so it was quite quite a fun night. Oh, cool. And it's, it's great that you got to share a film that uh, people wouldn't necessarily have heard of or sought out, perhaps. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Because it, it would have been very easy as far as you know, picking a filmmaker that people in London had heard of, just going, uh, OK, Tarkovsky it is then. But, I mean, I haven't seen all of Tarkovsky's films yet, but I can't think of a big food connection with any of them. No, Tarkovsky doesn't really have much food in his films, but um, when I had a um, Kino Vino dedicated to my favourite, another favourite uh, film, uh, Mirror, together with my dear friend and amazing chef, Olya Hercules, um, we kind of went for the 
sensuality of the film, really, and the whole theme of mothers and the memories, because obviously for most of us, uh, food is such a strong connection to our childhood and our mothers, because we probably are fed by, most of us are fed by our mums. And that kind of gave us really beautiful creative freedom. But at the same time, um, Mira is most of the scenes connected to the author's childhood are set in a beautiful buckwheat field. And um, Tarkovsky writes a lot in his diaries about all those beautiful memories he has um, running through the fields. And just, you know, that buckwheat field is really a strong character. And obviously buckwheat as an ingredient is a huge part of Russian and Soviet diet. And there is a short scene in the film where you see children, um, well, Tarkovsky and his sister essentially, eating a buckwheat porridge, a most traditional um, thing that we all ate as kids, even though, you know, some 70 years separate me and Tarkovsky. Um you know, it's a very simple boiled buckwheat with sugar, a bit of butter and, and milk. So kind of like a cereal, really. Um, and we use that scene as a departing point. And it was just a really brilliant coincidence that Olya was actually developing a recipe for an ice cream based on that iconic Soviet porridge. Um, so what could be better? Yeah, buckwheat was one of those things that I'd never really had until until I moved out to to Russia but then you know I discovered it and of course you know it's it's kind of funny that it's uh, like a health wonder food over here but in Russia it's just a, you know a standard thing that you eat all the time um I guess going back to food and Russian films the only thing that readily springs to mind is the uh less than great beef in uh, in Eisenstein but maybe that's not the uh, connotation you want to go for <laughs> funny you should say that battleship Potomkin um <laughs> borish with the maggots and the meat I actually had a really weird anxiety dream recently where um I think it was like my academic past meeting my <laughs> current kind of cooking present where I was doing a Kinovino type event um, at an academic conference dedicated to Battleship Potomkin and <laughs> I was cooking borscht, a ginormous pot of borscht which wouldn't boil. And I was just so stressed that <laughs> there wouldn't be enough time to cook it. But um, there were no maggots there. But yeah, it's just funny that you actually <laughs> you can always find some kind of a food connection in the most non-foodie films like Eisenstein's work. Yes, life imitating art imitating life or yeah uh yes but anyway back to the film so the the film is little vera or malenkaya vera uh and so that one is directed by vasily pichul am i pronouncing that right mm-hmm. awesome okay so what we'll do if this is your first time joining us we will uh say a little bit of russian and that word that we say is payekhali which means let's go well, let's start. Yeah, awesome. And and it's kind of like a famous phrase because, I mean, it's something that people said anyway, and that's why he said it, but it's what Yuri Gagarin said when he was just about to become the first man in space because it's like, off we go. Okay, so, three, two, one. Payekhali. Nothing. 
And we're back. We have just watched Little Vera, directed by Vasily Pichul. And before we get on to discussing what we thought about it, uh, we're going to have a quick plot summary from Alyssa. So this is the point where if you haven't watched it and don't want to know what happens, spoiler alert, uh, don't say we didn't warn you. So the film is set over a summer and it focuses on a young woman called Vera who just finished school and she's a bit lost about what to do next. She's living with her parents, an alcoholic father and a hard-working mom. And then at one of the local dances, she meets a dashing young gentleman called Sergei, who is a student. He lives in a local student accommodation and they start a passionate love affair, which leads to marriage. Vera tricks her parents into thinking that she's pregnant and they allow her to marry him and then Sergei moves in with them. And the whole experience of living with the parents obviously kills the romance pretty quickly. And um, their relationship starts to fall apart. And after a series of massive arguments, Vera's dad stabs Sergei. Um, And this is a really testing moment for Vera, you know, whether she sticks with her family or her new husband. And... After some really heartbreaking encounters with her parents, the film kind of doesn't really have a conclusion. It's a very bleak um, ending where Sergei Vera once uh, attempts a suicide and Sergei comes back from a hospital and her father is alone in the kitchen drinking and he actually dies of a heart attack. Yeah, he, he collapses and yeah, we we're led to believe that he probably died, yeah. Yes, that he probably dies, yeah. So it's a very bleak, kind of inconclusive ending, which, um, yeah, stays with you for a really long time. Very powerful. Yeah, yeah. And it's it, it's there's a bitter irony to that ending in, in that just after you've got the sense that maybe Sergei, uh, Seryozha and Vera are going to, you know, give it one more go... So it's kind of like, oh, there's a ray of light. Mm. No, nope. <laughs> we're slamming the, <laughs> slamming the blinds down on that. Yeah. Yeah. No, there isn't. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Alyssa, for that uh, wonderful, concise summary. So, yeah, as we've already established, uh, kind of a bleak and in many ways sort of depressing film. And in, in fact, it falls within like a category of late, Soviet slash early post-Soviet filmmaking. Uh, I want to say called uh, Chernucha, is that right? Yes, correct. Yeah, Um, and which comes from Chorny, which means black. So it's kind of like a negative, you know, dismal, depressing Mm. kind of like... I mean, to call it a genre is the wrong word, but just... I mean, approach yeah, it's, it's or category a, or... Yeah, I suppose it's a wave of films that came about in the late 80s when um, Gorbachev's policy of glassness, so open speech, like free speech, yeah. and the 
pretty pretty much the collapse of the centralized censorship system um, of the film industry led to this whole new wave of films which could finally speak out about the um, reality of the Soviet experience. And I mean, um, a lot of praise for Little Vera goes towards that kind of honours depiction, but I think there were films before it, of mm. course. It wasn't the first Soviet film to openly depict... Um, you know, the reality of the experience of the young people in the Soviet regime. But um, I guess this one was more overt, maybe more kind of in your mm. face. It has that kind of amazing young energy because the director was quite young himself. Yeah, he was like um, 27 or 28. 25 yeah, or 27, yeah. yeah. And, his, uh, and it, was, it was actually written by his wife. Yeah, and it's based on his... It's short in his hometown it's actually in ukraine in mariupol or zdanov yes. as it used to be known yeah and um it's pretty much based on his own life and the character of the mom and there's actually kind of an anecdote that when the director's mom saw the film she got really upset because um obviously that <laughs> the character of the mom in the film is very much inspired by the director's own mother and she's not shown in the best of lights yes yeah um <laughs> more autobiographical than she probably felt was 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 yeah. necessary and i, I yeah. think that's a like a relatively uh common complaint with uh with artists uh, relatives like sometimes things just get a little bit too much yeah, yeah. uh okay art <laughs> inspires life but you know you're kind of doing the laundry in public kind of thing mm. uh yeah vasily pichul's wife was just for the record maria Khmelik, i think Yes, yeah. yeah, I just wanted to give credit where, where credit's due. And I, I imagine there's probably like a certain amount of autobiography there actually, you know, in it centering around uh, a young woman and being and being written by mm, uh, mm, a woman. Yeah. And to me, one of the things that, that came across is it seemed like there was a strong thread of criticism of masculinity in a way. Oh, definitely. Um, it's well. The whole. It's worth saying that the title itself, Little Vera, um, has a kind of a dual meaning because Vera is a word faith in Russian as well, as well as a woman's name. So Little Vera is either you know young Vera, the character, or the lack of faith, really, or the lack of um, future. Is just yeah. I guess the whole bleakness is definitely the word that <laughs> it's very characteristic of the film. Yeah, you could al almost switched her name up to Nadezhda, which which means hope, and ha and, it, and <laughs> yeah. achieved a, a, a similar so, effect. And, exactly. and obviously, with yeah. with Russian, well, I say obviously, Russian not having articles, it, you know, yeah. it, you can't say a little faith because you don't have a. So it so it has that ambiguity, like like you yeah. say, and yeah, I just wanted to say the the men in this film are. All pigs. I mean, all of the characters you get. There's a strong like. None of the characters come off particularly well, but I think like the men in particular are just <laughs> just awful. Yeah, in I their guess own the way. whole yeah, this idea of um, you know lack of a strong father figure or a leader, um, but at the same time, I mean, I've I've seen the film. I don't know how many times. Many, many times. And yes, I was going to say this is this was more than like a third or fourth watch for you, wasn't it? Oh, definitely. Oh, yeah, countless amount of times. But as any good film, you know, 
you see something new each time you see it and the film kind of evolves with, with yeah it. i was gonna i was gonna ask actually was there anything this time that you went huh not spotted that before um well to me i think the relationship between vera and her parents was initially and i guess also as you grow older mm. maybe because I, I first saw it when i was in my uh, late teens maybe mm. so i didn't obviously see it when it came out it came out <laughs> in 1988 no. and i was a bit too young for a film like yes. that um but I did. It was my kind of parents' favorite film because they saw it then. But yeah, so I saw it the first time when I was in my late teens, and I was initially about the same age as Vera. I'm guessing. Yeah, so the same age as Vera, and I was definitely kind of on her side, seeing parents as negative yeah. characters. But more more recently, I kind of started to see a more nuanced mm. relationship between them, and um, you know, as bad as her father is in so many ways. There is something very vulnerable and very moving about mm. him and about their relationship. That scene where, in the beginning of the film, which is essentially, in a way, it's kind of like, because she chooses Sergei towards the end, she's not mm. there to save the yeah. dead. Because the film, it's almost like a cyclical kind of motif. Mm. The film begins with him drinking alone in the kitchen, and then she comes home and she puts him to bed, and he's also screaming that his heart is, you know, he's having like a heart attack and he's going to die. Yes, yeah, it's very heavily foreshadows the ending. Yeah, and she's there, you know, she puts him to bed, and even though she's very angry with him, there's still some kind of degree of tenderness mm. between them. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and how he remembers when she was a little girl, you know, so there is some kind of, you can definitely sense it's her and the dad who have a stronger connection. Yeah. And so, to you know, so at the end when he's there again calling out her name and again, you know, symbolically fa mm, faith, mm, you know, lack of yeah. faith. So neither the faith nor Vera, the girl, is there to save him or to, you know, be there yeah. for him. So I felt like that relationship is a lot more complex and nuanced. not as negative. Mm. Yes, exactly, as it might come across in the first viewing. And also the mom, I mean, you know, she's your standard Soviet woman. Robust. And, yeah, and, you know, she does what she thinks is best for her family. She works, she brings food, she cooks, you know, she does the ferments, of course, um, you know, for winter and for her, you know, for the dad to drink with vodka. Yes. <laughs> um, and I love that conversation that Sergei has, you know, where he says, like, why are you making ferments for the dad? Because he's drinking vodka. And she says, well, if I don't make ferments, he'll still drink. So, you know, what a, what's the difference? Um, at least we have some ferments. Yeah, I think the implication seems to be that, like, at least this is kind of like breaking it up. It's slowing exactly, him down a little yeah. bit. Where, <laughs> exactly. And 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 Serioja's point is like, yeah, but if you didn't make it for him, he wouldn't have he anything wouldn't, to, you know, yeah. and maybe you'd stop doing it. And she's like, no, it's not that simple. I mean, maybe yeah. I'm mischaracterising it slightly, but... Uh. No, I think that's... I kind of saw it that way as well. So, you know, her character is... She kind of does her best. And, mm, yeah. And it's, again, it's one of my favourite parts of the film is when... Vera tells her that she's pregnant and that initial moment of, you know, anger is immediately followed by, oh, who do you want to have, a boy or a girl? And it's just such a, like, you know, it's such a silly thing to ask. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> but it also shows, like, her humane side that she kind of, you know, they almost have this new connection and she, she is quite caring, asking her about the sickness and um, you know, kind of morning sickness and all of that. So there is some kind of humanity to the mum as well oh, and, and, and i mean everyone really like um i i get the impression that if you didn't watch this film 
carefully, you could just come away with the simplistic impression that just everyone hates each other because everyone's just yelling mm. at each other the other time. They're screaming a lot. Yeah. But that's that's quite a typical Russian family as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, just the level of... Yes, the, they don't go in for the very stereotypically uh, British middle class thing of just like going off into a corner and silently resenting each other. <laughs> no, no just have it not. out. <laughs> not that style. Yeah. Yeah. Although in some ways the, this this is almost like a like an advert for the for the British just just repress everything because when it all comes out it can mm. be really ugly and horrible. Yeah. <laughs> just bottle it yeah. all down inside. No, of course I'm I'm, I'm joking, but <laughs> but yeah, the, like you say there is that there is that tenderness. And in general it's a subtler film than certainly I had been led to believe and unfortunately mm. in a way because it, it's it's almost like a notorious film because it was the first Soviet film to have like a fairly explicit sex scene like that yes. seemed to be yeah. the thing that you know this is the problem with critical circles being dominated by by men uh, certainly that was more the case when this film came out they kind of all mm. leapt on the fact of yeah. like oh there are some boobs in this and it's just like yes <laughs> sorry just like uh, yeah. eye roll it's it's a shame actually that yes that um the film was marketed or you know whether intentionally or not, I don't know. But um, as a kind of a, yeah, she's like the new sex symbol and the sex and the Soviet cinema. And it's it's so not what the film is no. about. So it's a bit of a shame that it kind of m- missed, you know, receiving more praise on so many more important things that it talks about. Yeah, definitely. But certainly if you're the Western person, you know, charged with getting as many eyeballs <laughs> uh, pointed in the direction mm. of this film, you can sort of understand the temptation to oh, go, uh, hey, sells, yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and sex on the Soviet Union. Yeah, yeah, because, like, because of course, like fa- famously, uh, Unas Sexanet is, uh, the, yeah. there is no, <laughs> or whichever version exactly. of that quote, there's no sex in the Soviet Union. Yes thing yeah. had become you know quite famous a few years earlier with like the telemost like telebridge mm. broadcasts yeah. so that's kind of yeah funny from a marketing angle um but yeah in terms of the tenderness with her dad that scene where they have the very unsuccessful picnic uh, mm. yeah it's a beautiful scene that mm, yeah oh, it just blows up and then vera is lost in the rain and she's taken shelter under the under the kind of like beached boat and her father comes and Mm. and hugs her it's like yeah there there's like we've been saying there's some nuance and there's definitely some tenderness it's you know the family they clearly love each other but it's just often expressed in very kind of dysfunctional ways Mm. Yeah. Um, another standout scene, because I mean, most of the scenes are, are worth talking about, but the like formal dinner that uh, the parents put on just after uh, Vera and Serioja have had their registry office marriage. Oh, it's brilliant! Yes, uh, that that's most like the pivotal scene, I'd say. Uh, like the fact that the parents and Vera and uh, the older brother Victor they all dress up for the occasion. Mm. So even though mm. it's they're not going out somewhere, but they're eating. Yeah, yeah, it's 
you know, obviously a paradoxical concept in the Soviet Soviet Union. Sunday best is kind of like how people would understand it here, maybe. Uh, they're dressed mm-hmm. very formally. And, of course, Seriosha turns up in, like, a T-shirt and, like, Hawaiian shorts or something like that and is just being very casual. Yeah. Yeah, he's just taking the piss. <laughs> yeah. um, it's I love that scene precisely because of, you know, how we talked earlier about the social aspects of living mm. in the Soviet Union and how cramped the apartments were and that people only had their kitchen as the socialising space. But when you had a big event, if it's a wedding party or someone's jubilee, um, then dinner would be served in a living room. There would never be an extra dining room. That's a complete (laughs) unheard of thing. It's very bourgeois. Um, So like that scene, it really exemplifies my family had so many special meals in a living room where you kind of half of the family sits on the sofa and the table is put next to the sofa and then you borrow chairs from the neighbors because you obviously don't have enough to accommodate everyone and that's what's so beautiful about this film that you know anyone who lived in the soviet union they would immediately identify with that moment of this very special meal Mm. and the best part i think one of the things that i it's a really small element but i love it and when I had the Kino Vino event dedicated to the film, I actually f- forgot to mention it. Um, you see a beef eater bottle <laughs> on their table. I thought about that. Yeah, I noticed. I was like, because obviously the fact that it's not in Russian and in the Cyrillic alphabet just drew my eye. And I was going, like, am I looking at that yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, so the that would be another thing that probably every Soviet family had. Again, how we talked about this black market thing. So maybe one... One person knew someone who knew someone who had the original beef eater gin, but they would only get the empty bottle because that in itself would be such a treasure to have. And then in that bottle, they would put their either the cheap vodka that they get from, you know, the local store or even like homemade um, distilled drink of sorts. And there would be one bottle that would be kept as a mm. treasure for years and passed on to, you know, your, your daughter's occasion, special occasion or something like that. And um, when we watched it recently with my mom again, she told me that she collected um, bottles like that. And she had like a bottle of whiskey that had tea in it. And she would change the tea to make sure that it doesn't go moldy and stuff. Um, so it, there was that kind of um, another element of where food you know, food and drink culture had very different significance um, to what <laughs> us watching it now. Would... Yeah, once you can't get hold of something, yeah, it acquires a specialness. Yeah. Um, in terms of collecting things, uh, maybe I saw this wrong, but it seemed like Seriosha on the back of his door on his room in the Obshishitia, the, the, mm. the student dorm, he seemed to be collecting cigarette packets. Mm, yes, that's another thing that... Um, it was quite popular or common thing to do is collecting all the foreign labels. And again, you probably wouldn't have, wouldn't even have smoked the cigarettes mm. yourself. But yeah, you had you know got hold of someone who gave you an empty packet, or you would even borrow it for a bit and have it in your, you know, sure. on your shelf and then pass it along to. Yeah, someone that else. that does actually remind me of of my student days in that I quite liked to. And there was a couple of us on my corridor who did this. So, you know, funny how sometimes you just end up landing with similar similar people. But we used to try to find obscure beers as we could. And so we would then, mm. like, once we'd got them, we'd 
keep the bottles of trophies. I'm sure it was very unhygienic. I mean, I tried to rinse them out, but I'm not sure that always happened. But <laughs> So that was kind of like, <laughs> oh, some student things are, you know, relatively universal, yeah. apparently. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, again, in terms of that scene, it descends into, you know, catastrophe, but it does have some of the humour. And there is, I wouldn't go as far as saying that this film's like a tragic comedy because the element of tragedy is much stronger but there is humor mm. there oh absolutely and i love the bit where serioja wanted to have some wine and he he was taking his time over it and i think oh god yeah, yeah uh Kolya, the dad made some offhand comment about like <laughs> you know that he wasn't a very good drinker um yeah. and he was like well I like to sample the bouquet, which is a yeah. massively like <laughs> ugh, pretentious thing yeah. to say. On the other hand, it does give Rita, the mother, the chance to do a brilliant little reaction. She just like either like raises her eyebrows and makes eye contact with her husband. Oh no, she actually says like, "Dad, you know, you should sample the bouquet." Yeah. <laughs> And the implication there is just like, might be a good idea if some of the time you took your time over these. <laughs> yeah. There's a novel idea. And I just love that because she's, you know, not the most fun character, but the fact that the film does show mm, that she, she has, has her, her sense, she has yeah. a sense of humour. Uh, and and yeah. people aren't just a, like a cardboard cutout, like, Mm, and in general mm. with the with the film like i thought the first 10 15 minutes were quite full on and aggressive and then it kind of mellows out a little bit because i was thinking mm. is it going to be like this for two plus hours because <laughs> i'm not sure how i'm going to take that but it does it, yeah. after the initial like all the stuff with the police and like youths meeting up to have a fight and just like oh goodness is yeah. this going to be like all sensationalist and it's like no there's there's quieter yeah it has lots of scenes different kind of moods going through yeah it, um oh i did i i wanted to i wanted to ask again it connects with the dinner but collier the dad says forward with a song and that comes back <laughs> a couple of times in the in, in the film is is that yeah. like a soviet like a reference to something um, or it's um well his character is amazing he is obviously a very very simple guy who has a very limited vocabulary and um he just keeps keeps saying the same things it's kind of like instead of saying mm. cheers um he would have his own little quirky saying Pirotus Pesne, but um and and i think he says kak gavaritsa like as as they say all the time yeah so yeah it's you know it is a bit of a nod to his you know lack mm. of education and it's something that sergey really can't you know at first he kind of makes fun yeah. of it but when he's actually stuck in the same apartment with this really narrow uneducated guy you know that's why his real kind of anger comes yeah, out yeah yeah um, although i ha i have to say of all the characters i think serioja was the one that i had the least sympathy with mm, like definitely yeah like the whole thing of when he just just after they've been married he just is talking to Vera and he's just like your parents are so dumb and they're so mm, so boring mm. I'm kind of like look if you think that you can't help thinking that people have the impression on you that they have but don't say that to your wife about her parents yeah. like yeah. I know she doesn't ostensibly she doesn't get on with them but it's just a very like 
insensitive, mm. tone deaf, stupid, stupid thing to say. And it's just like, ugh, it's just. And I, I get the impression that he's probably just using Vera because he's a bit of a Lothario oh, yeah. and he kind of. And I mean, he, you know, at least um, he gets his own room. Mm. And, you know, I think, I mean, it's a lot. His action is a lot about the whole kind of um, flat situation and, you know, living in the dorms with someone else is not yeah. as... I mean, it doesn't seem like his choice of living with Vera and her parents is a much better option, but at least, you know, they are treated as the newlyweds and they have kind of the privilege of having the bedroom and... Yeah, the the parents do try hard to accommodate them. Like, it's kind mm. of funny in that it's almost like it's almost like a reverse shotgun wedding in the sense that it's it's not the parents that are... I mean, you get the impression that the parents, you know, do pressure them to get married after Vera claims that she's pregnant, but I get the impression that Vera claims that she's pregnant in order to be able to get married, maybe. I don't yeah. know. Like, that she knows that that's how they'll respond and that will kind of give her the opportunity to I mean I could be reading that totally the wrong way but you you get the feeling that she really does love Sergei and he on the other hand is kind of like Vera is fun to be around uh, but at least initially doesn't feel that deeply for her although you know he does come back at the end yeah I, I don't know yeah I, I really took against him I mean I, I think I kind of took against Vera initially but then when mm. I saw that scene of her helping her dad to bed and he makes the comment about like, oh, remember when you were little and you used to like just prod me to... <laughs> mm. uh, and the fact that she's just had to grow up dealing with this just made me yeah. a lot more like sympathetic to, to yeah. her her plight. And I, and I feel very sorry for, for Rita, the mother, as just having a husband who... Is is an addict. Has, has got to be awful, but she's just kind of doing the best that she can. Hmm. Yeah. And I think in the kind of so again, it's interesting, like the difference of context. I mean, I'm not saying again that like being an alcoholic in the Soviet Union is fine, <laughs> but it was you know it, like his character would not have been seen as someone who is really um, problematic. You're like, yeah, he has a drink, he gets drunk, and then. You know, but he still works yeah. and he still brings his bit of money. So, you know, he's not like a dysfunctional... He's a functioning alcoholic and pretty much, um, you know, in, in that probably kind of community, in that part of the country, people of, um, you know, who work in similar professions, they would have had that lifestyle of just coming home from work, getting drunk, passing out, and then Get up the next going day. off to work yeah. the next day. So it wouldn't have been seen as something completely, you know, that people kind of empathise with Rita because she has to struggle with an alcoholic yeah. husband. It would just been seen as like, well, that's kind of the reality mm, of it, really. Mm. And I think the whole, like, having a pretty brutal job in any, mm. like, industrialised society has, and, and, you know, not much time or money to go out and enjoy yourself in a more fulfilling way has kind of, like tended to make people like rely on on substances yeah, just to kind of like to, to kind of numb uh, numb the experience yeah and i think from the emotion of the film or like the director's point of view i don't think he is 
um, you know, is he's not condescending in his depiction of characters, which I find really important. There's, I feel there's kind of empathy towards everyone, and it's almost like it's the regime or the just the kind of outcome of the regime that's the problem. Yeah. It's not that any one character is a bad guy or, you know, in on their own. It's more of a kind of history that they come out of or they live in. That's that's the problem. That's why the director kind of places the blame. But Yeah, they're kind of victims of circumstances rather yeah. than just being like you know, quote unquote degenerates or whatever. Mm, yeah. No, mm, you're right. Exactly. He is he is yeah. he is definitely sympathetic. Uh this is kind of an aside, but again it goes with the small element of, of humour in in the film. But I realise that I've been doing this podcast long enough that I get references or I got a reference in this film to another Soviet film. There's a bit where they're on the beach having having the picnic and yeah. one of the characters, I forget who it is, says, Vereshagin, don't start the motor, uh, which is... Uh, <laughs> oh. Which is a reference to White Son of the Desert, where the character Vereshagin blows himself up inadvertently mm. because the uh, the motor on like a, a boat has been rigged to go off. So I was kind of like, oh, that's kind of fun that oh, they've yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they've snuck this reference to this cult mm. Soviet film from I guess a couple of decades before in. Uh, so I li- I mm. like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, the f- that film is quite interesting in a way. I guess, you know, it's very realist in its aesthetic, so it really kind of absorbs all different um, reference to popular culture that would naturally yeah. be there. Like, the the music as well is very... Um, quite a strong, like, motif in the film. Um, and it's Sofia Rataru who was... I mean, she's still around and kind of hasn't aged <laughs> today since then. So in the 80s, she was a huge, huge star. And the songs that um, feature in the film... Those were like kind of her smash hits of the 80s. And uh, yeah, just kind of the references um, in the dialogues as well. So yeah, it's a very um, kind of naturalistic film mm. in that sense that if you watch it, you do get an, a sense of kind of what they listened to, what kind of cultural atmosphere they existed in. Yeah, the the, the diegetic music as, as well. Mm. Yeah, as you, as you say, uh, you've got the kind of like late 80s kind of like almost like hair metal kind of stuff that they're listening mm-hmm, to in public mm-hmm. and it's kind of like wow that really places the film in a very mm. specific time period yeah yeah so i thought that was that was cool the fashion and yeah yes yeah vera with her very big hair, hair and yeah fishnet tights and yes yeah the fishnets i think i think early i don't know whether it's the first shot of her i, I don't think it is but Early on, you do get just this this shot of these. I think it's two two pairs of legs in yes. fishnet tights. Then with the disco, yeah. yeah, and then it just pans up from yes. their feet uh, to their faces to that kind of loud um, music that comes out of a very bad speaker. And it's <laughs> yeah. like really like ah, really in your face. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like in terms of the the visual and the cinematography, like it doesn't it didn't strike me as particularly flashy, but it also. Uh, it was it was very it was very intimate and close in a lot of the time. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, I think the, again it feeds very well into this aesthetic of um, you know realist naturalistic yeah. depiction that you know there's no self-referential or kind of overt technical mm. elements in the film where you kind of stop and think, oh yeah, that was a cool camera, yeah, yeah. or you know, it's very very subtle, very observational. 
I guess that maybe that scene that we just talked about at the disco where the camera pans up, um, it's it's done a bit for a comic effect because, you know, you see the fishnet tights and then yeah. the faces when they're like crazy makeup, massive hair, and they all kind of have this very silly expression on their faces. So, you know, there are a few moments maybe where there is a bit of a comic effect. But other than that, it's all very subtle and, yeah, you know, it's just there. It's observing. It doesn't kind of force the style on you. Yeah, and I, I liked how they almost used the shots of like the harbor and the like cranes and industrial mm. like chimney stacks and stuff almost like as punctuation like a comma like a breathing yeah. space between the scenes like different scenes yeah and it kind of just reinforces that sense of space and it really you know really places you in that little dark polluted town yeah yeah because on the one hand it's it's summer and you have people referring to how hot it is and quite a bit Mm. of time people are you know sitting around in especially the men like in kind of boxer shorts and vests yeah but yeah you've kind of got this kind of bleak and kind of grimy maybe kind of hotness to it uh Mm. Which, again, yeah, for Western viewers who are used to stereotyping Russia and the former Soviet Union as being all cold all the time is, is possibly a bit of like a, oh, that's not mm. normally what yeah, I associate definitely. it with. But yeah. yeah, yeah, I thought that, 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 was, that was cool because you didn't really need any of those little short sequences to be in there. You know, if you took them out, you'd probably cut the film down to just under two hours rather than yes it's it's over two hours and it's a bit long yeah but it does like you say it gives you that extra atmosphere i guess i'd say Mm, mm. um ah oh this is the one thing i i wanted to ask before before we wrap things up um how did the dinner guests at kino vino react to this to this film did you get much of a chance to speak to them afterwards yes i almost wish i had more time i mean it's such a fantastic film that you want to have a kind of a yeah. discussion afterwards or something um i've had actually more than usual um i've had more questions and comments after the film than on a, any other oh, great. and people were asking yeah people were asking about where the film was set because there was a very strong sense of place and they were wondering you know again i think they thought it was um Unusual for it to be by the sea, but I don't know. Again, like, <laughs> miscon- I mean, it is actually in Ukraine, modern day in Ukraine, not in not in Russia. Um, a mere a mere culpa in terms of I like to like flag up at the beginning if we do a film that's not strictly set in Russia, but yeah. I wanted to say yeah. that it's Russian language, and yes, Natalia uh, Nyagorda was born in Moscow, and I think uh, Maria. Melik was also. I mean, the the actors are most mostly born in Russia. Yeah. I mean, yeah. If we go into the kind of the details, it's like ethnically Russian, but again, maybe they have non-Russian relatives. I don't know, but I think in that sense, it's more productive to just call it Soviet because that's what it was. But um... yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, uh, Vasily Pichul was actually from Zhdanov, modern day Mariupol, so it was kind of like a local, yeah. like autobiographical in that sense, maybe. It. W- yeah, yeah, definitely. So it was set and where where he was from and his mum also worked as a I think on the um, one of the like local telecom stations yeah. or whatever. Is that is that yeah, I think that's um so it's very autobiographical, yeah. Yeah, but you you were saying sorry before I sidetracked with the Ukraine thing. Oh, so yeah, people were asking about that and um 
kind of how the film did afterwards, what the director made, what else the director made since. And sadly, actually, he hasn't, if I'm not mistaken, he only made one more film. Yeah, and he died... And like, he died recently. Yeah, four or five years ago, quite young. Like, I think he was, like, yeah. 54, 55, somewhere in mm, there. But, mm, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's, he's definitely kind of a director of one film, but what an amazing film to be remembered by. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... Because normally, if it's a first watch for a guest, I'd say, would you recommend this to to other people? But I mean, clearly you would. You you chose it. You chose oh, it as a as a mm, Kino yes. Vino feature. But uh, yeah, thank you very much for coming along. And yeah, it's been a really interesting discussion, and obviously great to talk about this film with somebody who grew up in in Russia and has a bit more of a like insight to the th- into things that that. Uh, that I might not have spotted as uh, as somebody who didn't grow up there. Yeah. Mm, that was lovely, thanks. <laughs> Great. So before before we wrap up then, is there I mean obviously there's there's Salt and Time uh available in all good bookshops, I'm I'm guessing. Yes, and on Amazon as well. Yep, of course. Very important. <laughs> Would that be available outside of the UK as well as Yes, the book is actually also available in Australia. And it's coming out in Canada and the United States in September, I think. Oh, okay. Oh, great. But apart from Salt and Time, where would we find you on the internet? So I've got a website, kinovino.org, which got um, all the information about my supper clubs. And um, I do private events as well. And then I... I'm quite obsessed with Instagram, so... <laughs> yes, as you mentioned. On Instagram, I am Borscht and No Tears, which is a bit of a silly name, but I love it. <laughs> and, and that's Borscht spelt B-O-R-S-C-H, right? Yes. Yes. No, no tea. tea. Yes, I know some... I don't know why a T gets inserted there somewhere. I don't Makes understand where. no sense. Must, maybe it's a Yiddish M- spelling. Maybe, maybe, maybe. I'd have to, have to look that up. But yeah, there's if you transliterate borscht, there's <laughs> no. no tea anywhere. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's that's me on online. Okay, great. Well, yeah, I would definitely encourage people to to check those out. Although probably check it out on a full stomach, otherwise you're just you know <laughs> going to be giving yourself extreme hunger pangs. <laughs> or if you're close to the kitchen and cook yes, straight away, yes. but yeah, if you're stuck on a train and a hunger, yeah, somewhere, yeah. Then not. <laughs> book bookmark it and come back to it later. <laughs> Yeah, yep. definitely. Okay, well, thank you again so much, Alyssa, for coming oh, along. It's a it's pleasure. Been, Thanks for inviting me. It's been a, it's been a great, fun discussion, albeit uh, not about the cheeriest film, but certainly one that's well worth uh, people checking out. Oh, it's definitely worth mentioning and discussing, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks. And do svidaniya, folks. Do svidaniya. So that's it for this episode, but before I go, I'd like to thank Sasha Ilukovic and the Highly Skilled Migrants for the use of their song Cold in our intro. You can find that song and the rest of their back catalogue on Bandcamp and Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please consider supporting us by leaving a rating at Apple Podcasts or at podchaser.com. 
that second one, Podchaser, even lets you rate individual episodes. So if this episode particularly stood out to you, you can let other listeners know that you enjoyed it. Recommending the show on social media is hugely helpful as well. If you can spare a moment or two to do that, it would really make my day. Thank you, thank you very much. Speaking of social media, please find us and say hi on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. You can also drop us a line at roosfilesunite at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, take care of yourselves, and bye for now.